You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Olivia Crimmel. Hello. Xander Wilson. G'day, g'day. And Callum Jaspin. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Xander will be talking to Nine Radio's Managing Director, Tom Malone, about 18 months without the Macquarie Radio brand. Yeah, Macquarie Media um, was a strong brand, but really the strongest brands in the radio business are the consumer-facing brands, so 2GB in Sydney, 3AW in Melbourne. Why Ben Fordham's commercial appeal is more important than his ratings. You know, revenue in the breakfast shift is up 40% year on year. So um, we're certainly on the right track from a business point of view. And where Nine Radio sits in the company's ecosystem for advertisers. Yeah, I think from a, um, there's, there's several advantages, obviously, from the first one is around audience cross-promotion and being able to um, promote Nine News, for example, and you, you hear the Nine News brand. But first, the week's topics. Mike Wilson to stand down as chairman of Havas Media Group Australia and New Zealand. IPG confirms management buyout of Weber Shanwick and Jack Morton Australia. And Google and Facebook launch new journalism initiatives. Havas Media Group's Mike Wilson will stand down at the end of the month, having served as chairman for Australia and New Zealand since 2019. He was the founding CEO of Havas Media back in 2013. Uh, but was perhaps most famous for being one of the founding members of Naked in Australia with Matt Baxter and Adam Ferrier. It's been revealed Wilson will continue a relationship with the agency as a consultant moving forward. He's had a great run at Havas since 2013, uh, but what are the plans for the group moving forward, Cal? Yeah, so as you said, Damo, he has been in a in a different role since 2019 and Moving forward, I just spoke to Virginia just before we came on this call, and she Virginia said, "Virginia Highland, the CEO of Havis Media." Oh, sorry, yes. Um, to clarify, yeah, Virginia Highland. We were just on the phone um, a couple of minutes ago, and she said that Mike will be hanging around to work on a couple of key initiatives um, moving forward. So. She said that Mike has always been a great mentor for her, even before Havis. They've known each other for around two decades. Um, So with him stepping down, she said it's important that she wants to keep working with him uh, and she'll keep working alongside him in some key areas, those being strategic thinking and also client relations, something that Mike has been for quite some time well regarded for, as you mentioned, with his days at Naked. Um, And then also finally working on uh, a kind of team culture perspective at Havis. Um, and this comes from his support that he's provided with uh, Virginia since onboarding the Highland Agency at the back end of last year. Virginia and Mike both said that the integration of Highland last year was one of the most smooth transitions that they've seen in what is generally quite a tricky thing to do, um, bringing in an uh, independent agency. So him sticking around to help guide her and direct that agency's onboarding was pretty important for her. Virginia said that Mike wants to open himself up to working with new people and new opportunities rather than, you know, sticking around for the day-to-day life of that agency. 
And look, I, I guess I, I wouldn't doubt uh, Virginia and Mike saying that it's been a, a smooth transition, but of course they would say that. But uh, you touched on a, a note before, Cal, in terms of the movement to have us media group in, in that there has been quite a lot of that uh, going on recently, some big shifts. Uh, of course, uh, like you mentioned, Highland Media uh, coming part of that and Virginia taking the CEO role. But um how have things uh, changed at Havis Media recently? Yeah, so probably most importantly, as you mentioned there, um, Wilson was pretty instrumental in the group acquisition of Highland Media a year ago in August. Um, and Virginia was subsequently named CEO of Havis Media in December. I asked Virginia whether there was a plan for her to become or take on that CEO role when that acquisition was uh, in motion. And the original plan was set in place for her to run the Sydney office. And then that just naturally evolved into becoming that national role based on how the business was performing and looking at plans for this and future years. Um, That obviously resulted in who was at the time CEO, Matt Holtham, who uh, succeeded Mike when he departed, well, when he stepped into the chairman role in 2019. And since then, there's been a pretty significant um, restructuring or plenty of movement of this in the senior leadership of Harvest Media. So, as I mentioned, Holtham was there for well, in the role for just 12 months after four years as Melbourne Group MD. Um, and then, well, Holtham was actually at Naked with Wilson at the time. Um, and then in May this year, Francis Cody moved across from Havis's sports division where he was general manager and he was named chief marketing officer. So he'll be working pretty closely alongside Virginia moving forward. Um, Last month, Alistair Baker uh, was appointed as the head of client strategy and planning in Melbourne, most recently working at iProspect. And then former icon and IPG Media Brands executive Dan Jones took on a newly created role of managing partner at Havis Media in March. So, I mean, there's a a number more appointments that I could go into, but um, a lot of these new positions are, well, as I say, they are newly created positions. So there's clearly a strategy in place there, one that Highland is kind of making her own and executing hand in hand with, um, uh, interestingly and quite importantly, three three female CEOs across the Harvest Village. So you mentioned uh, there are a lot of change, some big names in that as well. But on the impact of the departure of Mike uh, Wilson, particularly when it comes to uh, the parent company, the French uh, entertainment giant uh, Vivendi, uh, a few question marks from some quarters that uh, this might uh, create a, a little bit of uh, confusion, perhaps uh, some delays in a few of the plans moving forward. You actually managed to to speak to Virginia Highland uh, just before this podcast. Uh, did did you ask her anything about that? Yeah, I did. So, you know, it's been suggested elsewhere that Havis's ongoing integration with Vivendi, who acquired um, the Havis brand, in, I think, four years ago, might be put on hold for now as they focus on other areas of integration, such as a spin-off for Universal Music, who is owned by uh, Vivendi. Though speaking to Virginia, she basically said to me that this was this had been reported incorrectly, or you know, the wording had been reported incorrectly, and she's not quite sure how this conclusion was reached. Um, 
So with brands like Universal Music, Gameloft, and Canal Plus, Vivendi certainly do have a lot going on. But uh, Virginia said to me that this doesn't really affect what they are doing with Harvest Media. And in 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 saying that, she pointed to a couple of collaborations with brands such as Universal Media and Gameloft with uh, ongoing campaigns Harvest is putting forward. So as far as I understand, this won't really change much in that aspect. Now, it's been a bit hard to get hold of Mike Wilson today, as you would uh, expect, but we've got a little clip uh, on his thoughts of working for Havas Media Group. Uh, back when we got the Naked Band uh, back together, essentially, at Mumbrella 360 in 2019, uh, and in this interview, he's on stage with Matt Baxter, Adam Ferrier, and he's speaking to Tim Burrows. I don't know if this is an elephant in the room. We need to kind of just get on the table now. Two of you now work for big media agencies, yeah. Yeah. global agencies. Yeah. Um, are you okay with that? Like, would would would, would, the, would, yeah. would, would, would no. the would the door kickers of ten years ago be okay with that? One of them was saying earlier to me that they're really enjoying it. It's just that their soul has been destroyed. <laughs> I don't know if that's appropriate. Well, I think it's fair to say it's fair to say that I, I, I definitely am working for a big global media network. But Matt's now working for his third global media network since That's he left, since he left Naked. Um, and and the, the sort of semi-serious answer was I was really nervous about joining a, a global multinational after leaving uh, Naked because I'd spent 10 years contributing to the Naked story, which flew in the face of the, the multinational. So the multinational that I joined needed to have a really compelling, engaging story about where they were going and what they're doing. And I believed, and I still believe that, the Havas Group has that story, and it's part to do with their commitment to content and their, um, the connection with the Vivendi Group, which, all of which is very interesting. But if you want to hear some really, really cool stuff about that tomorrow, come to Imogen and Greg James's session tomorrow, where they'll be talking to you all about meaningful media. Next up, another IPG agency splits from the holding group. This week, Weber Shanwick and Jack Morton Australia confirmed to Umbrella that Group Managing Director Helen Graney had bought a majority stake in both agencies earlier this year. While the deal took place in January, it largely went under the radar. It is one of a series of buyouts of interpublic group agencies in Australia, following most recently 303 Mullen Lowe and before that Future Brand and McCann Australia. Speaking of McCann Australia, just a quick congratulations to Ben Lilly and the team there and some pretty big um, Umbrella Award wins. But back to the topic at hand, Zandi, you covered this one uh, this week and kind of earned you keep trying to get this one all confirmed. The other buyouts were really well publicized. What happened here? Why was it so low key? Yeah, so one of the first things I discovered when I started looking into this was that IPG in Australia doesn't really have a go-to contact in terms of comms across its entire suite of agencies. Mark Code is obviously the CEO of IPG Media Brands, but his remit is only across those media brands agencies, which includes UM, Magna, Initiative, Reprise, and a few others. So that doesn't extend to some of the other agencies which fall under IPG at a global level. So I ended up going to the PR agency we mentioned there, Weber Shanwick, at a global level, uh, who directed me to their local team, who I hadn't dealt with before. Uh, locally, they are run by Helen Graney, and she's also been the managing director of Brand Experience Agency, Jack Morton, since 2009, and then has taken on that same role for Weber a couple of years ago. 
they were able to confirm that Grainy bought a majority stake in both agencies all the way back in January. Uh, and though it was, wasn't announced publicly at the time, uh, clients and staff were informed. The result of that was that IPG maintained a minority stake in those agencies. And I was told that Weber, Shanwick and Jack Morton are still very much part of the IPG family. Uh, so it appears perhaps that IPG is working now to address some of that disconnect that I found when when I tried to find someone responsible for the for those comms across IPG in Australia. Just recently, as we reported, uh, Mish Fletcher was appointed as Chief Growth Growth Officer for AP, the APAC region. Uh, so I, you would imagine that that will mean that there'll be a little bit more speaking to each other between those agencies in the region. Um, though people I spoke to this week across a few IPG brands weren't still 100% sure what her appointment would mean for them and their agencies on a day-to-day basis. Hey, I mean, Weber Shamwick's a PR agency. I'm sure uh, we'll be hearing a lot uh, from them moving forward then, hopefully, if they use uh, some of the skills they've obviously got in the team. But uh, first question that usually comes to mind with stuff like this, uh, jobs. Uh, what happens with jobs? Have there been any uh, movements? Obviously, this happened a while ago, so maybe we know what the fallout may have been or already, Xander. Um, any collateral damage here? Yeah, so not not as far as I'm aware. Um, I ended up getting onto a pretty old email chain that was uh, sort of when the announcement went around to staff uh, back at the start of the year. And that was just sort of assuring staff that everything would basically remain the same. Uh, the only thing that would happen would be that Helen Graney uh, would continue, well, she'll continue to to maintain the the day-to-day of both those agencies as she had done for since 2019 when she took on the group managing director for Weber Shanwick role. And I believe that there weren't any changes on that level in terms of staffing and really very little changed to the extent that, you know, they didn't feel the need to announce it publicly. So um, clearly there wasn't wasn't much happening there. Now tell me why um why do you take these two together? Obviously you've mentioned Helen being in charge of, of both of them and there's some Big names in, in both agencies uh, as well. Bit of a shout out to, to Vinnie Punchell from uh, Jack Morton also. But, um, you know, it's a very challenging time in, in the economy uh, at the moment. There's a, a fair bit of uncertainty. And, hey, let's call a spade a spade. Jack Morton's a, a, a brand experience agency. They do a lot in, in the experiential space of events, things like that. Um, why take both together and why not just take Weber Shanwick, for, for example, and, and minimize your, your risk? What was the, the thought there? Yeah, so it, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, having run both agencies for two years and, and having joined Jack Morton all the way back in, um, I believe, 1999 was when Helen actually joined that agency before um, taking over running of it um, 10 years later. To be honest with you, I don't know uh, why those would make sense to be to be taken on together. As I mentioned there, you know, Helen's been running both of them for a couple of years, so perhaps that's a question for her. Uh, perhaps we can try and get her on the Mumbrella cast sometime later this year as well and ask her that exact question. Uh, in terms of something that you do mention there, minimising risk, you know, the, the connection there is that they're both IPG agencies. They're not part of media brands. And I think that this is a clear sign, you know, with the other IPG agencies that have had management buyouts or have been sold to other holding companies, that IPG is looking to minimise its risk in this region. Well, we better do a bit of a stock take and see what's left. But uh, before we do that, uh, look, a lot's obviously happened over the last 18 months or so, but uh, is there a trend uh, popping up globally around buyouts like this, Sander? Clearly, there is IPG-wise in Australia. Is it being matched anywhere else? 
What I did find out this week was that Weber Shanwick had management buyouts in both Ireland and Northern Ireland, uh, but that seems like a pretty isolated thing. What we are seeing is more of this type of thing in Australia and Asia. We have mentioned uh, recently, most recently, um, IPG sold its its majority stake in 303 Mullen Low. Bell and Lilly bought McCann from IPG at the start of last year. And midway through 2020, Rich Curtis bought Future Brand from, from IPG as well. I think what it does show is something I alluded to earlier, uh, which is that IPG looks like they're willing to make deals that make business sense on a case-by-case basis in Australia and the APAC region more widely um, because that sort of, to answer your question, it's not just happening in Australia. In May of this year, Mullen Low Japan was sold to a local holding group called Bionimica KK. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, and last year as well, IPG sold its majority stake in Mullen Low Indonesia and also in the Philippines too. Uh, so it's inter- that's some interesting context when we look back at the the recent sell-off of 303 Mullen Low that I think quite a few people in the industry expressed a bit of surprise about. Uh, but when taken in that context, perhaps it wasn't as surprising. As as for what it might mean more broadly, there are a few conclusions we can draw, I think. Uh, after the impact of COVID, as I mentioned before, it could be a sign that IBG is looking to reduce its risk in markets outside of North America and Europe, which are both obviously much bigger in scale and much more mature than Australia. The markets in Australia and Asia are, are obviously quite different to, to the rest of the world. Looking at Australia specifically, there's obviously the blend of there's a lot of competition, but also the market is quite small, which which means that holding companies take a higher risk for a lower reward, perhaps compared to to, to Northern Hemisphere markets. And, and as mentioned, agencies like Future Brand and Weber Shandwick are remaining either part of the broader global brand family for IPG or their own brand globally. So what we can conclude from that, I think, is that IPG does want to still keep a foothold in this market, but as I mentioned there earlier before, uh, just reduce their exposure and risk at the same time. Let's move away from the agency talk now because coming up next, Google and Facebook announce local news journalism initiatives. Tech giants Google and Facebook have both announced new initiatives to support Australian news journalism. On Monday, Google revealed a new team up with News Corp to create a digital news academy, which they say will provide digital skills trainings and new opportunities for young journalists. Meanwhile, Facebook launched its $15 million news fund and the expansion of its Facebook news product to Australia. Uh, Not unsurprisingly, this is not just a big pot of money to help news journalism in general. Uh, Liv, what are the ins and outs of both these initiatives? Yes, Damien, Google and News Corp um, have both announced uh, new initiatives to help with journalism. Um, The News Corp and Google Digital News Academy is set to provide training to 750 local and regional news professionals. The program is set to run over three years and will provide tuition in skills, um, digital journalism, video, audio production, etc., etc., Um, On top of that, there's also 60 new 12-month journalism traineeships in regional Australia over the next three years. Um, No investment value has been cited by either in terms of this new academy, which is quite interesting because uh, in comparison, Facebook came out a few days later announcing its $15 million news fund. Uh, It's actually two funds. Um, that Facebook is going to be uh, funding it with that $15 million. One is the Newsroom Sustainability Fund and the other is Public Interest Journalism Fund. 
Um, expressions of interest in both funds are open if anyone wants to apply. Uh, but as we all know, um, both Google and uh, Facebook have been making deals with these large media organisations uh, since earlier in the year when the uh, news media bargaining code came to a fore. Um, as we all recall, Facebook uh, closed off news on its platform for uh, a week as a result of the uh, government's proposed code. It seems now that they're all playing nice, though, now that uh, both Google and Facebook have thrown millions and millions of dollars at the large media outlets in the country. So there's a few things to unpack from that. I mean, it's amazing to me that we just think about in February this year, late February this year, no, no less, Facebook was public enemy number one to to media organisations, and we're in the the middle of or not even in the middle of August, and this is happening now. But regional, rural, local, those terms are being used uh, a lot. Um, they're nice is, vague terms. They're nice vague. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, look, if you look at it from a surface level, it's lovely in one sense. Everyone likes a good news story about regional and, and rural journalism being pushed. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the favourite questions of, uh, of of Tim Burrows was always, are these really the, the saviours of, of journalism now? I'm going to throw that question now to you, Liv, in, in terms of, you know, is this, should we be looking at this as, as the, 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 I guess, the way out of the big hole that journalism dug for itself? But, um there do seem to be a few caveats here. There are definitely caveats. And look, to a certain degree, yes, uh, all the media companies will shout until they are blue in the face about how the digital platforms had stolen all their advertising dollars. And as a byproduct of that, that meant that they had less money to spend on journalism. The term that comes to mind that's been used predominantly throughout the last 12 months, particularly with the code, is public interest journalism. Um, it would seem now that because Facebook and Google have come to the party and, and willingly dished out millions of dollars to the media outlets that the public interest journalism seems to have fallen off a little bit in terms of being a huge priority. Um, having said that, <laughs> you know, these they're doing it via certain platforms. So they've obviously Facebook announced this new um, new initiative also at the same time that it's news product has supposedly launched in Australia, although they said it's only to a number of users at the moment. So the rest of us will have to wait and see what that looks like and how it works in practice. Um, but yes, it, it does appear that for, for at least the time being, the uh, the payments from uh, Google and Facebook are, are making the uh, media companies much happier and much more uh, willing to play nice. Um, we will just have to wait and see, though, how long that lasts and, and whether it does actually mean uh, longevity in the news businesses that are currently receiving those payments. Yeah, making some media outlets happy, though, because, you know, if you if you call a spade a spade, um, when Facebook made that, that big call in February, it was the small publishers who got hit real hard, real quick. Um, hey, before we went into lockdown, one of the last business lunches uh, I had was with Rich Fogarty from Concrete Playground. Uh, and I note that uh, there was a story uh, in the SMH recently about um, 
uh, broadsheet, urban list and concrete playground uh, getting together and sort of claiming they could be forced uh, to consolidate uh, after Facebook had shut down requests for funding to support their journalism, which of course, you know, some could argue it's not news journalism, it, it's lifestyle, it's feature, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but that's ten- tended to be the general consensus from small to medium publishers, non-news publishers, is that they've had a really hard time uh, getting anything uh, from Facebook or, or Google, even uh, developing the conversations. Uh, what have you heard there? Is there still discontent a- among that portion of the media? There's still huge discontent, actually. And and it's funny to note that so the ACCC, who kind of kicked off this whole endeavour under the uh, stewardship of Chair Rod Sims, they've said since the code has come into uh, action that they will be there to support those small and, and independent publishers with their negotiations with the likes of Google and Facebook. We've seen that come to fruition once in that they approved a collective bargaining agreement for country press Um We haven't seen it in any other instances as yet. And funny enough, Sims was quoted recently as saying that he he was overjoyed with the results so far in terms of those agreements that had been made with Facebook and Google, although he had commented on the the feedback that dealing with Facebook was taking longer than expected by several of the media outlets. Um, He... It is interesting, though, that from his perspective, it's it's you know it's exceeded expectations. The the purpose of the code and getting money out of those digital platforms for media outlets is basically what he wanted, and that seems to have come to fruition. Which media outlets, again, is is the question here? Because yes, all the big ones, the News Corps, the Nines, the Seven West, even ABC have, have all signed deals. But then, to your point, you know those smaller independent publishers are yet to really see any of that um, dollars coming through to them. Uh, Also worth noting that even a large media company such as Our Media apparently is not eligible for those payments because they're not a news outlet. Um, So it's not even just small, you know, boutique publishers that are are facing this challenge. Um, The the other thing to note as well is that at the same time as the uh, Digital News Media Bargaining Code was going through the Senate, Um, there was another inquiry about diversity of media in Australia happening at the same time. And that inquiry also found that the diversity of media in Australia is very limited. There are several big players and they control a majority of the news that we consume. So to um, uh, Urban List founder Susanna George's comments that, you know, this is just going to prolong that and, and and further that in terms of if the big media companies are getting more money to throw at their resourcing, then smaller independent publishers and, and the ones that provide that diversity of, of voice are going to struggle to be able to compete. Um, and just lastly, in, in terms of the, the resources and the, you know, public interest journalism, which was the main point of the code, um, from the outset, we're actually yet to see any tangible changes from any of the big publishers in terms of where that money is going to invest in, i.e. extra journalists or new services for consumers when it comes to the provision of news. So we'll just have to wait and see and and hopefully there'll be something in the near future. What we don't have to wait for, though, is Xander's chat with Nine Radio's Tom Malone. That's coming up next.
I'm Xander Wilson, and joining me this week on the Mumbrella Cast is Nine's Managing Director for Radio, Tom Malone. Tom has been part of Nine for over 15 years, working in EP roles across the Today Show and 60 Minutes, as well as serving as the Director of Sport before taking up his current role in late 2019. His appointment coincided with Nine's takeover of Macquarie Radio, and he led the launch of Nine Radio as a brand. And since then, alongside head of content Greg Burns, Tom has significantly refreshed the content lineup across 2GB, 3AW, and more. Tom, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Xander. So I guess to start with, we're, you know, looking back at what is now 18 months of Nine Radio. I can't believe it's gone by that quickly. How, what are your initial thoughts when you reflect back on that time, which obviously hasn't been without its challenges? I mean, which you probably expected coming into the role. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a pretty significant uh, 18 months uh, or just over 18 months now um, since uh, we took over um, the radio business from Macquarie. Um, and I think when we came in, we thought, okay, what we have to do is we have to make sure that this business is going to be profitable now and sustainable for the future. And there were some pretty big challenges ahead of us around cost, programming and revenue. And so we set about sort of tackling those individually. Um, and 18 months on, I think you look at what we've done, we've taken 20% of the cost base out of the business or about $20 million in costs in terms of programming. We've launched 20 new talkback shows in 18 months, which is really unprecedented, especially in a format or a genre like talk radio where um, the audience doesn't necessarily like change all that much. And then from a revenue point of view, there's no doubt we've had our headwinds around uh, the advertiser boycott, um, uh, a cyber attack at nine and a couple of different COVID lockdowns of, of varying lengths and degrees in different cities, which have, have impacted our, our budgets. But Nevertheless, we've restructured from a sales point of view and um, so that we've grown our share of tier one agency revenue, which was a big part of the strategy when Nine took over the business. And we're now starting to see all of that hard work over 18 months around programming cost and revenue um, start to take fruition as we head into FY22. Yeah, definitely. And just going back to when when you were first appointed, um, just wondering, was getting rid of the Macquarie Media brand always part of the plan? And 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 was there much concern over, I guess, losing the brand equity that was associated with Macquarie Media built up over quite a long period of time? Yeah, well, Macquarie Media um, was a strong brand, but really the strongest brands in the radio business are the consumer-facing brands. So 2GB in Sydney, 3AW in Melbourne, you know, we are really a house of brands as opposed to a branded house. So you mentioned Nine Radio in the intro. That's really, for us, a corporate entity. Um, we don't really talk about that brand a lot to our consumers. It's something we talk about a little bit in trade press, but really the strength of our of our stable is our talkback radio brands, 2GB, 3AW, 6PR, 4BC, and they're the brands we focus on. And so that's our focus is live and local. It's that relationship with a listener at the local level. And so that made that decision about rebranding the corporate entity from Macquarie to Nine a, a lot easier. Yeah. And, and you do mention, obviously, the commercial side of things, and, and we'll dive into that uh, in a bit more detail uh, in a little bit. But um, obviously, part of the changes that have happened, you've overseen, you mentioned that there are 20 new radio shows, which is not insignificant. Um also coming with that was inevitably the departure of really some Australian radio stalwarts in in two of the biggest markets in particular, you know, with the likes of Alan Jones and 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 John Burns leaving. Um, there have obviously been changes across 
various other stations too. Did you arrive in the role knowing that you were going to have to make such wide-reaching and comprehensive changes? No, I don't think you you approach it um, from, oh, we're going to come in and start making changes. I think you approach it from what's our strategy? Where does the business need to be in five years and how do we get the business to that point? And what's the um, optimum time for making those changes? And so um, that's sort of how you approach decisions like that. It certainly wasn't something we came in thinking we've got to make all these changes. But as we started evolving where we needed to be, from both a cost, audience and revenue point of view, then some of those changes started to unfold. Some of those changes weren't at our instigation. Some of those changes came from broadcasters themselves, but that then facilitated opportunities elsewhere in the business as well. Yeah, and and from a commercial perspective, how impactful and important have the talent changes that have been made been for Nine Radio over the last 18 months from your, from your perspective? Yeah, I think it's been significant uh, in terms of um, you need, we, we use all sorts of metrics. Audience is one, profitability is another, you know, even cost per listener is another one we look at. Um, but in terms of your question, I think was around commercially, uh, you know, Ben Fordham's just finished his first 12 months on breakfast and for the financial year, revenue in the breakfast shift is up 40% year on year. So that's a that's a great sign of, of how well Ben's going in the breakfast slot on 2GB. As a business, uh, we've just had our most, across the whole group, we've just had our most profitable month in more than three years. So um, the changes we're making from a commercial point of view are starting to take shape and we're very confident about the outlook of the business uh, going forward over the future financial years. There will be um, bumps along the way, there's no doubt. From an audience point of view, there'll be shifts um, and that happens when you have a lot of change um, and certainly um, we're seeing the beginnings of the revenue recovery. Um, radio is obviously one of the um, markets that was most impacted by COVID because it's such a short market in radio. And every time you have another lockdown, like we're experiencing now in Sydney, that had, then has an impact on your revenues. Um, but there's no doubt that a lot of the heavy lifting being done around cost and programming to make sure that uh, the radio business for nine is not only profitable now, but sustainable for the long term. Yeah, definitely. And I was actually just earlier today reading a, a chat you had with my former colleague Hannah Blackiston last year about the power of being brand safe. Um, that really feels like something that really suits the likes of Ben Fordham, Russell Howcroft, and those sorts of guys. It, specifically with Ben, obviously he's been you know a big part of the media narrative recently. Has been around the ratings with Ben. But can you just tell us a bit about uh, Ben Fordham's relationship with advertisers and and what the benefit is he specifically gives you in that slot with his personality and what he can do there? Yeah, I think it's something we ask of all our broadcasters. You know, our broadcasters have. Um, because because of their relationship with the listener. So they're delivering the latest news, sport, weather, information, entertainment, opinion, uh, 24-7 across our stations. And they're there for people in moments of truth like COVID or bushfires or floods. So a talkback radio broadcaster has a very uh, loyal relationship uh, with their listener. And then that provides a marketing platform, obviously, for brands to advertise in and around. So... Ben, like all of our broadcasters, uh, provides that platform. Um, it's something that's really powerful. It's something that is often underestimated because the layer of companionship that comes with talkback radio is significant in terms of, I suppose, the stickiness of the listener and therefore the strength of the marketing platform. 
Yeah, for sure. And and just before we move on from Ben, just wondering from your per- perspective, is is it um, frustrating for you to see the narrative talking about share and Ben's share and whether Ben's share is gonna is gonna bounce back? And and I do realise that Mumbrella is perhaps complicit in in this. Um, and whereas whereas perhaps you know the narrative should be. Ben is brand safe or, 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 you know, you're in a situation with Ben that, that you probably wouldn't have been with Alan Jones previously. Um, what's your perspective, I guess, on the media narrative there? I wouldn't call Ben brand safe in that regard if you're thinking that he's sort of withholding uh, from the audience or he's not prepared to advocate for the audience. There's no doubt Ben is um, someone that very much advocates for his listeners. Um so he's also a great, uh, a great marker and a great salesman. I mean, that's part of being a radio broadcaster. Do I find it frustrating? Listen, it's part of being in media. People love to speculate about ratings, be it television or radio or publishing. So that's all part of it. What I would say is it's, it's but one metric of success. Now, Ben, in the last survey, did a 13 and a half share. He's more than 10% ahead, ahead of where we expected him to be at this point, And he's doing a great job for the station. Um, ratings will will fluctuate. They will move around a bit. You know what? And they will for 2GB as well. Um, and 2GB will have its own challenges. But what we are seeing is that we are building a business that's profitable now and sustainable for the long term. So I gave you the example before, you know, revenue in the breakfast shift is up 40% year on year. So um, we're certainly on the right track from a business point of view because it's all about um, you know, the right broadcaster delivering the right audience at the right cost for the right return. And because at the end of the day, that's going to um, mean that 2GB and the Nine Radio Group is a profitable entity, um, which is uh, obviously a big part of our, our strategy. Yeah. And you spoke about uh, the recovery from obviously a difficult year last year with with lockdowns and, and that sort of thing. Do you think that ongoing lockdowns in Australia and, you know, particularly in Sydney, but but in Australia throughout the rest of the year could have a negative impact on finances, especially in the, looking into the second half of the year? Or, or do you think that, that radio and, and, and yourselves particularly have sort of developed better strategies to cope with, with these sorts of things that get thrown at you? I think the whole economy has developed better strategies. You know, when that first COVID lockdown in in Q4 of, of last financial year, you know, there was, you know, probably a lot of panic on the financial markets everywhere. And I think what you've seen with the localised lockdowns, either in Victoria last year for four months in New South Wales, now we're into our, our fifth or sixth week, I think you're seeing um, people are a, a lot more quick to adapt and you're not seeing the same um, drastic impact from a from a revenue point of view. There's no doubt it um, it presents challenges, um, but um, a lot of businesses have adapted well to those situations. So um, I don't think it's as drastic as it was, but there there is no doubt there is an impact uh, by, that comes with lockdowns. Definitely. And I just wanted to chat to you about Melbourne for a little bit as well. Obviously, Russell still relatively new um, coming in for a broadcaster in John Burns that had been there for a long time. And and as we look back at sort of the history of commercial and talk radio in Australia, uh, a significant change in lineup almost always comes with a drop in the ratings. Wondering, I guess, firstly, has Russell exceeded your expectations? And secondly, what does he bring in terms of his experience when it comes to brand integration and commercial opportunities there? Yeah, uh, Russell, uh, so I'm um, sorry, what was the first question of the audience? Has he exceeded expectations? Yeah, well, yes. I mean, 
when you think about uh, over 20 years, Ross and John were the number one show. Anytime you change a combination like that, you're worried about what impact it's going to have in, on audience. Now, obviously, there was a lot of listening going on in Melbourne last year during lockdown. So they recorded unprecedented numbers. At one stage, I think Survey 7, they did a 29.8 in breakfast on 3W, which is just unheard of. Um, they're now back around the low 20s, which is still extraordinary figures in any market anywhere. So they are doing a great job, Ross and Russ. What does Russ bring? Well, Russ is a 55, 56-year-old, uh, so he's 20 years younger than, than Bernzo. So there's generational change there. Uh, he brings um, new audience uh, probably from the Gruen on the ABC, and he brings a strong Melbourne influence because he's grew up around that Melbourne um, media and marketing um, scene as well. And he brings with him a hell of a lot of creativity. He's one of the most creative people I know. So you put him then in a room um, with Ross and uh, and the magic happens, you know, and, and Russ says about Ross, it's like watching the, uh, the composer, the conductor and the first violinist all at once in the studio. And Ross is similarly just as complimentary about Russ because uh, they've got this great... Um, They've got this great partnership going. So um, they definitely bring a lot. He's bringing a fresher sound to the station. Uh, there's an opportunity for um, for a broader audience to sample 3W and then stay with the station through the day. Yeah, and the live and local strategy is something that you've mentioned um, earlier as well. And and we, we sort of saw that further embodied last year with the move to to put Neil Breen in for a local show in Brisbane. And 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 I have spoken with Greg Burns a couple of times and you know, we sort of both agree that, that audience is is building and having a local show there is, you know, really embodying that live and local strategy. Um, how do you think he's doing? And and I'd wonder if you if you were to look back, should you know, should there have been a local show in Brisbane for years back rather than having Alan Jones piped in there for so long? Oh, I think I, I don't want to reflect on why previous management might have made previous decisions, but certainly the strategy we have set uh, for our radio stations is to be live and local wherever possible on a cost-efficient basis um, to get the right return. Now, obviously, 4BC was really taking the 2GB signal for the last few years. So it really is a rebuilding phase there. Um, Neil Breen's doing a terrific job. You know, he knows Queensland. He knows Brisbane so well growing up there. He's had great experience um, in media, um, working for, you know, editing the Sunday Telegraph. Before that, he was a sports journalist in Brisbane and, of course, uh, in the TV industry as well as a sports reporter and a producer for nine. So he's so well-placed to bring all of those skills together um, to be on 4BC Breakfast. And it's, it goes, it's so important, especially now when you see that really the states are operating so differently in lockdown. So more than ever, we are not a commonwealth, but we are a bunch of states that are doing their own thing. And then secondly, with the announcement of the Olympics for Brisbane in 2032, that is now going to be a real focus for the, for the city of Brisbane. So to have live and local content wherever you can is really important. That's going to be our unique sales proposition going forward. We're, we're proud of that. We are, you know, we're, we want to be live and local uh, in every market, in every shift if we can, because that's our point of difference to what everyone else is doing. Yeah, definitely. And I guess just staying on that point uh, with with new talent, um, well, not new talent, but, but Gareth Parker at 6PR in Perth is obviously new in that slot. Just, just wondering what you think about how he's gone so far, um, and also really the shake up to the to the Perth market this year. Obviously, 
obviously from a commercial radio point of view has, has been significant. Um, how long do you think it'll take for that market to sort of settle down and everyone to sit where they're supposed to be given there's been so much movement there? Well, I don't think anyone would like to think that they're where they're supposed to be. Um, but I think, you know, there has been a bit of change, obviously, with some formats changing around in Perth. And so that will take some time to develop. Uh, we are really pleased um, with the early audience uh, for 6PR. You know, I think they're tracking well above that. Their strongest start to the year in in six years. I think um, Gareth's doing a terrific job on breakfast. Um, I think actually he's really suited to breakfast, his style of broadcasting and with some structure there around new sport and weather on the half hours. Liam Bartlett in mornings is doing a terrific job with his return to radio. Millsy in afternoons is very much the heart and soul of 6PR and he's doing a wonderful job. And then Ollie in drive, there's been other changes as well with Todd at nights and on weekends, Bowie going to weekends and even Mark Gibson weekend afternoon. So but more, more so than, I suppose, the audience or the immediate ratings, we're really happy with how 6PR is sounding. It's sounding terrific. It's a, it's, a, it's a station that knows its audience. It's always been live and local um, with a change to the lineup now and some marketing above the line and pushing some listeners to it. We're really pleased that they're liking what they're hearing, the samplings there, the cumes going up, the TSLs going up. So, um, you know, six months into that change, uh, they are doing a phenomenal job at 6PR. Yeah, and I guess now that we've spoken about, you know, each of those markets, you know, understanding Nine Radio in, in its holistic uh, strategy across there, I'm just wondering what you think about, like, how much does having Nine Radio as part of Nine's ecosystem help when it comes to, you know, the proposition for advertisers and, and bringing advertisers in, um, being able to have the radio aspect perhaps compared to before uh, Nine Radio was integrated as part of Nine? Yeah, I think from a um, there's, there's several advantages, obviously, from the first one is around audience cross-promotion and being able to um, promote Nine News, for example, and you've, you hear the Nine News brand across our radio stations, the extension of brands like Wide World of Sports, which you're hearing on 2GB and 4BC, and we'll hopefully be able to roll that out on 3AW and 6PR in the next 12 months. Um, there's also beneficiaries for radio around um, cross-promotion and leverage back into the radio business, exercising house inventory for marketing and things like that. And then, of course, um, we sort of tie all that together and speak to our um, advertising and marketing um, arms and say, well, we are a great um, advertising and um, business partner for you to be with because we can offer you uh, so many different channels, be it television, publishing, digital, and now radio, and, and we can advise you on where your money's best placed for the best return on investment for your product or your business. So um, I think it's, a, it's definitely a really important part of media going forward is the ability to um, reach um, consumers at scale and effectively, and that's something that the nine group does really well and it's certainly an important part of our proposition and market when we're speaking with with our clients and i guess if you were to look you know to the rest of the year and even looking into 2022 i can't believe next year's 2022 um uh, would you have any predictions for 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 nine radio and and perhaps even even the australian radio industry in general well, I think what you're seeing is the, they go hand in glove. You know, I think what you're seeing is um, at an industry level is um, the, the industry is at the um, early stages of digital disruption and it's it's going to accelerate quickly. 
And so uh, for nine, the nine radio business, just like the other radio businesses in the market, it's about um, managing and balancing the transition of audience from linear or analog to digital and, and then managing and balancing the transition of revenue as well. Um, so, you know, the future of our industry, just like publishing, just like television, relies on having a direct relationship with your consumer, in this case, the listener. And that's important from both a content and a commercial point of view. So from a content point of view, through our apps and websites, through single sign-on, we can surface more content that's appropriate um, to that user. And we can also then um, deliver a greater advertising experience for both the consumer and for the and for the advertiser. So that's a really important part of where we're going at Nine Radio. I know it's a strategy that the other radio groups are pursuing as well. Uh, I suppose... Um, we have an advantage of being part of the broader nine group then, um, and being part of that suite of assets. But certainly, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you've got to have the right content. Uh, we are a content business. We're about producing the right content, and then the second layer of that is we've got to do it at a cost-effective basis for the right revenue return, um, and that'll be an important part of our business as we go forward and managing and balancing that transition from linear to digital. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Tom Malone, thank you so much for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast today. Xander, thanks so much for your time. And that's it for this week. But before we go, this year's Mumbrella Publish Awards will be streamed online on September 9 at 4 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. With a total of 28 categories up for grabs, make sure you tune in to see who is crowned champions in the publishing industry. To register for your free e-ticket, go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards now. We're done. We're out. That's it for this week. Uh, Callum, Xander, Liv, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Dana. Thank you all. Thank you.